Well, grace and peace to you in the name of the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I think we need some grace and peace after that cheery reading that we just heard. I've heard of some tragic birthday parties, but that one takes the cake. Oh, sorry. It's one of those lines you write sometimes and you're like, just, okay. For the record, Travis did read it first. He never said not to use that, so... As a kid, a tragic birthday party for me looked nothing like Herod's, praise the Lord. Uh, A tragic birthday party for me was when I didn't win any of the games that we were playing. No pin the tail on the donkey. I didn't get any of the money that was in the cake. Uh, I lost it all, the musical chairs. Um, A tragic party was when the kids wouldn't get along that I invited. Has that ever happened to any of you? You had your parties and then all of a sudden like these weird factions start to develop and like some kids are over here and some kids are over there and it's just not, it's not good. Uh, Or tragedy was when I wanted to watch Starman. Early 80s sci-fi movie, Jeff Bridges, excellent. We'd rented the VCR, we'd rented the video cassette, and we had it all set to go. And it's actually one of the worst movies you could show to kids. Yeah, it's sci-fi, but it's like all emotional and, you know, um, relational, uh, but not in the E.T. way. It's just, uh, it wasn't good. Anyways, so all the kids ran off to play with the toys that I just received. I just wanted to watch Starman. That's a tragedy. (laughs) I'm getting a lot of things off my chest here, everybody. Thank you very much. But this, of course, pales in comparison to Herod's birthday party. It's a story that is filled with foolishness, and it is filled with wickedness. It's a story that mirrors so much of the senselessness that was a part of the age that Jesus lived in. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark highlights the brutality of the age and its effect on the society at the time. This was the time of the stadium games, which included viewing people being torn apart by wild animals and gladiators fighting to the death. Stark writes, For the throngs in the stadia, watching people torn and devoured by beasts or killed in armed combat, the ultimate spectator sport. This is what you take your kids to for their birthday party. He comments, it is difficult to comprehend the emotional life of such people. One of the immediate observations, actually, about Christianity at the time, and often one of its criticisms, was that it brought value back to humanity. At a time when people were simply not seen as having any value. This is the age that Jesus is living in. This is the age that the church is born in. And we see this play out in a scene like at Herod's palace on his birthday party. The key characters are Herod and his wife Herodias, no doubt a match that probably deserved each other. Uh, Herod had seduced Herodias, who at the time was married to his brother Philip, and together they divorced their spouses to marry each other. As they were both Jews, or mostly Jews at least, they had uh, broken God's law. This is where uh, John the Baptist enters into the picture. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness, says Leviticus 18. John the Baptist repeats his rebuke over and over to Herod. It is not lawful for you to have her. And if there's one thing that tyrants and their wives don't like, it's when someone's accusing them of wrongdoing, publicly, and especially when the accuser is speaking the truth. And so John 
is imprisoned. And we know that many people at that time who were imprisoned aren't going to come out. But like many tyrants, Herod fears the people. Though he wants to, he refuses to kill John since the people regard John as a prophet. It would be bad for Herod's popularity. But Herod's weakness and foolishness is matched only by Herodias' crafty vengefulness. And so on the night of Herod's birthday, no doubt influenced by wine and the likely sexually suggestive dance by his wife's daughter, Herod makes an oath to her in front of everyone, being big, right, being boisterous, and likely to impress his guests to give whatever the daughter desires, so pleased is he by her dance. And this young girl, I feel so sorry for this young girl, I think she really is a pawn in all of this, is directed by her mother to say, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Herod has no choice. He either loses face with his guests and the influential uh, guests that he has and his wife, or he follows through. And the result, it's immediate. There's no trial. There's no cries for reconsideration. John is beheaded, and his head is presented to the daughter, and the daughter brings it to her mother. What foolishness and wickedness. And I wonder what the atmosphere was in that banquet hall at the time. Was it a hushed silence when it came? Was it full of drunken cheering and coarse jokes? Wow, sex and violence. What entertainment at a birthday party. Did Herod stick around to finish out the evening? Did he have some cake and ice cream just to cap the night off? And as readers, we are left to feel the senselessness of the entire story. Wicked decisions made by foolish people. It is a tragedy, and likely we can relate to some degree. What I mean to say is, we have all probably experienced tragedies or events that rock us to the core. If not personally, then certainly through the lives of others, our family and our friends. We likely have all encountered situations where the outcome seems hopeless, senseless, irredeemable. And we are left to ask, what do I do now with this pain? Did Jesus ask that question? I have to wonder. I don't think John's death would have been a surprise to Jesus. But it doesn't mean it wasn't devastating. It doesn't mean that he wasn't hurt. John the Baptist, Jesus' own cousin, the one who baptized him, the Elijah who was to come, the last of the Old Testament prophets, is dead. And as readers, we are brought to ask, what will Jesus do with his pain? Well, let's read a little bit and see what the story says. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21, out of the NRSV, and it's behind me on the screen here. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the village and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. 
They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, not including the women and the children. What will Jesus do with his pain? Often in the wake of tragedy or of hard news, we have a reaction before we have a response. That reaction is that first instinct, the first thing that we desire to do or, or that hits us. And then that, there's that response that comes afterwards, after we've had some time to get our bearings and think things through. The beginning of this reading is one of those places we clearly see Jesus' humanity. It is safe to say that he is emotionally hit at the news of John's death and needs to get away for a while. It's safe to conclude he did so to pray. The Gospels show us when Jesus takes time to be alone, it's not to check his social media profile. It's not to go play one round or two or 30,000 of Candy Crush. It is to come before his heavenly Father and just simply be in his presence. Jesus' reaction is to pray. His first instinct is to reach out to his heavenly Father. This is where his refreshment and his strength comes from, to be in the midst of God. Remember, this is the Jesus who grew up reading the Psalms, who sang as a child, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation, Psalm 118. Jesus knows his strength comes from the Lord. That's where he goes. That's his gut reaction. I gotta get with God. Have you ever felt that way? I just, I gotta get with God. In this reading, we also clearly see that similar to our own lives, sometimes we don't get our way. Jesus is not just interrupted by one or two souls saying, Lord, if I could just have a quick moment of your time. 5,000 souls, plus women and children, hungering. These people are hungering for what Jesus has. Jesus' popularity is rising. The word is spreading. Even Herod is hearing of his miracles. And through, but though in his superstition, believes it's John the Baptist back from the dead. And so the people go to find Jesus. Now, if you're in a hard emotional state and 5,000 people that you don't know show up at your doorstep, what would your reaction be? I know what mine would be. This is the place that Jesus is in. What will he do with his pain? Well, Jesus doesn't yell, God, that's enough! He doesn't run across the lake on bare feet. Who needs a boat? I'm just getting out of here. He doesn't just ignore them, put fingers in the ears, kind of bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. You know, he doesn't do that. What Jesus does is beautiful. Jesus' reaction was to pray. His response is compassion. 
regarding what happened to John, Jesus could have ranted and raved against evil. He could have gotten really ambitious and launched a military campaign. He even would have a great slogan, you don't get your bread till you bring me Herod's head. Right? That was yours, I think. Instead, through his pain, Jesus displays beautiful, incredible, life-changing compassion. And this is nothing new. We've read of this before. Back in Matthew chapter 9, for when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We talked about compassion this morning in class. It means to be moved to the bowels. That's what this word is talking about for compassion. To be moved to the bowels, which in Jewish thought was that inmost place within you that held the seat of love and pity. Perhaps you've felt that before. You, you hear of something or you see something on the TV or there's something that occurs to you and it just hits you right in the gut. But it also makes you want to do something. It makes you go, I've got to do something about this. How do I reach out with this? Jesus is moved to the gut, to his inmost being for those he came to save. And through his pain, shows compassion. He attends to the people, healing their sick. And, and all of this is incredible in itself, and we haven't even gotten to the miracle yet. Jesus is on a roll. He knows it's been a long day. He knows it's getting late. But he's not ready to send these people home despite the disciples' request. You know what I think? I think Jesus is enjoying himself on the mountaintop there, on the hilltop. He is doing the work of the Father, and I think he's loving it. He won't let a small thing like hunger get in the way of this. It's like Jesus is saying, there's more compassion where this came from, for my Father is an unending well of love that just keeps pouring out. Let's take care of their hunger, you guys. In fact, let's tell these people not to simply sit down. Let's get them to recline in banquet mode because we're about to have a feast. We're going to show them that the Messiah is able to abundantly satisfy their needs. And it will point to the greater glory of the Messiah's ability to abundantly satisfy their very souls. And perhaps to his disciples, emphasis on the we here, lads. You guys are going to help me with this. Jesus' response to the crowd is compassion. And he involves his disciples in it. Now, despite my elaboration, Matthew's gospel records Jesus saying only three things. First, in response to the disciples' observation that it is late and the people ought to be dismissed to buy food, makes sense. Jesus emphatically replies, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Secondly, to their hesitancy due to the meager offering of only five loaves and two fish, Jesus says, bring them here to me. The third thing Jesus says is a blessing over the food. And did you notice, he then gives the food to the disciples. The disciples then take the food and gives it to the people. That's the life of a disciple for you. God tells us, you can do what I've asked you to do. Just give me what you've got. 
you can do what I have asked you to do. Just give me what you've got. And when I take it and when I bless it, you will do more with it than you could ever imagine. That's the life of a disciple. And that is what he tells the disciples. They will always be a part of what he is doing. And that's what he's telling us. We will always be a part of what Jesus is doing. And can you imagine the disciples' reactions while this is going on? I was thinking of this, and I was thinking, what would it be like? Jesus just hands out some bread and fish. And then he hands out some bread and fish. And then he keeps handing out some bread and fish. And I got to wonder what it was like for the disciples. Peter, here, take some more. Take some more, Peter. There's some folks over there that need a little bit more. I, I know it's awesome. Stop standing there and saying it's awesome. Just go take it and give it to those people. Awesome. Thank you. Thomas, there's some folks over there. I think they're ready for seconds. Take, just, I know, just believe it, Thomas. Take it and go and take, yeah, I know. It's, it keeps coming. It keeps coming. James, James and John, would you guys stop arguing who's passed out the most so far? Just take some more. There's some people there. They're ready for their third helping. Just keep passing it out. It must have been an absolute blast. Dinner with the Messiah. What could be better? For this is indeed what the miracle is alluding to. Jesus as Messiah, Savior, and Provider for God's people. Many commentators of the Bible point to the symbolism of the 12 baskets. Is this the abundant provision of the Messiah for the 12 tribes of Israel? Or perhaps is this speak of the authority given to his 12 disciples? And whatever particular bent we take, it certainly points to his authority over creation and his ability to fully satisfy the needs of the people in such a way that it points to his messiahship. For the miracles always point to something greater. Remember, never to get too hung up on the miracle itself. It always points to Jesus. Jesus always points to the Father. Through his pain, Jesus reacts in prayer and responds in compassion through his disciples. His pain leads to the healing and the provision of his people. That's what Jesus does with his pain. What in the world do we do with ours? Maybe that's the wrong question to ask. I mean, I'm not Jesus. I don't react well. And sometimes after a long period of forethought and getting my bearings, I don't respond well either. I know what my pain, be it physical or mental or spiritual or emotional, whatever it may be, I know what it often leads to. It often leads to anger and resentment. It often leads me to withdraw, but for all the wrong reasons, to do all the wrong things. It often leads me to hurt others. Maybe some of that's the same with you. We are a human lot, aren't we? So let's ask another question. What might God do with our pain? What might God do with our pain to help others? To show God's compassion, to show his love, to show his glory over and over again. Because no, we're not Jesus, but we do have a spirit within us. And through his spirit, Jesus is forming us into his likeness. By his grace, he is making us holy. And so we can learn by the spirit to turn to him in our times of pain. His reaction becomes our reaction. 
We learn in times of pain to let our first instinct be the one that seeks God's presence. We got to get with God. Our gut reaction is to cry out to our Heavenly Father for hope, for healing, for guidance into how to move forward. And whatever emotions that we harbor, whatever we may even think of God in that moment, we learn to go to Him in prayer. Because we cannot face the things of this world without being in the presence of the one who holds that world and all its beauty and absolutely all of its pain in his hands. He is our strength. He is our might. And he is our salvation. And like our story, this is all incredible, but we haven't even gotten to the miracle yet of what happens. You see, one of the greatest triumphs over pain is when the Lord uses it to bring out of us a greater compassion than we ever thought possible. This is the miracle that Jesus does within us. For I don't believe that his miracles were something he just did in the past, something that happened. They are something that is happening. And they happen within us. And they still all point to Jesus. He takes the hardships and he takes the injustices and the pains that we experience and somehow in some way, turns them into something that he can use for his glory. And our lives become defined by what Christ is doing in us and by what Christ is doing through us. We hold in our hands the small pieces of our lives that appear meager at best, at worst ridiculous or insignificant or irredeemable. Our two fish, our five loaves that we hold, often look like very damaged goods. Jesus looks at it and he says, give me what you've got. Give me what you've got. Five loaves and two fish? No problem. I can use that. A broken relationship? No problem. Give that to me. I can use that. Anxiety issues? Not an issue. Give it to me. I can use that. A life that's defined by sin? In me, your life is defined by love. Give it to me. Watch me use that. Just watch what I do when you give me the little that you've got. For little is always much in the hands of Christ. Suddenly, suddenly, the pain that was so prevalent in our lives becomes the thing that God uses to reach out to others who struggle with the same thing. That means those who've experienced being abandoned or unloved in Christ gain the ability to include and love others. That means those who've experienced brokenness in Christ have this incredible capacity to foster healing in others. That means those who've experienced a crisis of faith in Christ suddenly are the go-to persons for those who are living in doubt and in fear. It may happen immediately, it may happen day by day, but in Christ it comes to fruition. Hear that with hope this morning, church. Hear that with hope this morning. I've experienced this in my own life. I know I can say the same for my wife. Come and ask us about it someday. Some of you know the story. Others don't. Come talk to us. Ask us about it. 
secure it with hope this morning, church. The story this morning begins with what pain looks like in the kingdom of this world. It's what becomes of pain when it's left to foolishness and wickedness, as we saw played out in Herod's palace. It leads to senseless depravity. It leads to all kinds of death. I don't want to live by that kingdom. We are not called to live by that kingdom. We are called to live by the kingdom of heaven, to live by the reign of God at work in our lives. In that kingdom, pain is not the final answer. It is one of many hardships that we still suffer in this world and always will, but it's not the final answer. For Jesus came to heal And he came to satisfy the hunger of our very souls. And it is through his pain that we come to know this, through his pain on the cross and through his triumph over death as we just celebrated so wonderfully last Sunday. Jesus, who saves us from our sins. Jesus, who came to show a better way. came to show the only way. So this morning, I want to encourage you to pray with me in just a moment. And as we do so, to lift up our pain to the Lord, whatever it may be. The situations where the outcome seems hopeless or irredeemable, the ones that have us crying out, what do I do with this pain? Give it to the Lord. If that sounds flippant or just too easy, don't believe that. It is one of the most powerful things that we can do is just to give it to the Lord and let Him begin to work with that. To give up what little we hold in our hands and watch as He takes it and wait and see how He redeems it and uses it to bless others for His glory. Amen? So here's what I'd like to ask us to do. I want to encourage us, as many of us were taught when we were young, to bow our heads and close our eyes in just a moment. And I'm going to pray. And I want to encourage all of us, bow your heads, close your eyes. And what I want to ask is, if you have something on your heart that you truly want to give up to the Lord this morning that is just weighing on you, I encourage you, lift up your hands. You don't have to. There's nothing magical that happens when we do that. But I want to encourage you to do that. Lift up your hands. Maybe just a touch. Maybe all the way up. But it's a beautiful symbol of giving that up to the Lord. And we're all going to bow our heads, we're going to close our eyes, so we're not going to be worried about who sees us. Not to be individual about it, we're all together here, we're in God's presence, and we're going to celebrate this even more so around the table in just a moment. But right now, let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes, and I encourage you, when you give up this pain, lift up your hands, just as a symbol of surrender to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in recognition that so often in so many ways we are hurting. We know, Lord, how hard it is. Show us again, Lord, how great you are. Show us again, Lord Jesus, how incredible your power is in our lives. I pray for all those this morning who are dealing with pain in their lives. Lord, help us now to lift it up to you. 
and to say, Lord, I don't know how this works. I don't know how you are going to do anything with this, but we entrust it to you, Lord. I entrust it to you now, and I say, Lord, take this from me and help me to trust in you. Lord, if it's physical pain right now, I pray, Lord Jesus, for healing on those who experience that. I pray, Lord, for patience where there is no more patience, Lord, because of how tired we are from it. I ask, Lord Jesus, for just a sense of hope in what you will do. Lord, if it's mental pain, Lord God, that we're going through, Lord, so often... um, so much of our day is foggy, it's, it's, it's messed up, we can't make any sense of it, Lord. You can break through, and we give that pain up to you, Lord Jesus. Lord, if it's emotional pain, if we have been hurt, well, Lord God, if we know that we've hurt others, we come before you and pray, Lord Jesus, for your, your power just to move and bring healing and forgiveness and redemption, Lord God, where things have become broken. And Lord Jesus, if it is the spiritual pain, Lord God, if we are feeling distant from you, we don't know your presence, Lord. We don't even know what to think anymore. Lord, would you come and take that pain, Lord, and bit by bit show us just how great and awesome you are. For, Lord, you have endured all this pain, everything and more, Lord God. You endured it, and you triumphed over it, and you encourage us, O God, to give it to you and to come in the presence of the Father. And so we thank you for that. Lord, all of these things we give up to you this morning. In the mighty and powerful and awesome name of Jesus Christ.